Welcome to another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast with your hosts, Mike Gore, James Casina, and Jocelyn Gotto. For more information, head over to opendoors.org.au or opendoors.org.nz. Here's today's episode. Hello, everybody. It is Mike Gore here, and welcome to another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast. Well, we've just finished our series of live events for 2019. We were in Melbourne, Sydney, Toowoomba, Brisbane, and today what we wanted to do was share that content with you because I tell you what, if you missed out, you missed out. So today, here it is, the message from Open Doors Live 2019. Hope you enjoy. But right now, it is a a great privilege, honestly, a great privilege for me to introduce the CEO of Open Doors in Australia and New Zealand. He's become a very good friend to me over the past few years. A man consistent in character. And I just love the fact, Mike, that your whole family are here with us tonight, sitting right there, kids in the front row. But why don't we give Mike Gore a big hand as he comes to join us tonight. Thanks, Mike. Well, thanks very, thanks very much for that intro, James. They're not all my kids, by the way. I'm sitting there going, man, there's a lot of kids and they don't look like me. But my kids are amongst that crew down there and the others basically like my family, right? Well, <laughs> thanks, bud. Good answer. Well, it is great to be here with you guys. Uh, thank you so much for coming along. I mean, Open Doors Live, as, as Jossie said, it is the favourite night of the year for us because we get to bring the church together, a church that we get to see all over the world, a unified church. And tonight, man, I I could hardly hear the band. I mean, it was screamingly loud, but I could hardly hear their singing over yours. And that was one of the most beautiful things for the people down the front, just hearing the voice of the church across Australia coming together to worship. And so we love these nights. As you can tell, lots of our team members are involved in them. Uh, the video that you saw at the beginning, the illustrations were all done by Kathleen on our team, an incredible artist, beautiful. Yeah. Now that Matt put the video together, the band was done by people we know, it's just incredible. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, as James said, Open Doors, as far as it goes, we've been helping people follow Jesus all over the world, no matter the cost, for more than 60 years. But the thing that's different about Open Doors, because unlike other charities, we don't actually exist to end the cause for which we serve. I mean, most charities, and it's not bad, but they attempt to stop whatever it is they're facing. But we believe that persecution is a consequence and a hallmark of successful Christianity. In many ways, by supporting the work of Open Doors, you're prolonging suffering. (laughs) That's probably not the best way to start a message, right? But um, in the most... hope-filled of ways. Let's get it back on track. So it's uh, advancing the gospel, you see. If we truly believe that following Jesus comes with a cost, well, we'll be wise not to measure our proximity to him based off his provision of safety. And that's what I love about this ministry, is that we invest into the advancement of the gospel, no matter the cost. And we do it by going to the most difficult places first. And now if I think over the next couple of decades, to be honest with you, I think one of the most important charities in all of the Australian church space is Open Doors. And why do I say that? Because in a world of changing religious freedoms and values into society, never before has it been more important to know the cost of following Jesus. And I think if I look forward over the next 10 and over the next 20 years, what we do at Open Doors is we use a persecuted church to mentor Australian Christians into a more courageous expression of faith. And so tonight, my hope is to take you on that journey 
And it's a journey that I want to start by asking you a question to think about. If you ever question God's purpose, it might be God's purpose for your life, God's purpose for any challenge you face, any job you're in. I have. In fact, I do often. More than that, I question God's purpose for the event tonight. Because I had this desperate desire to bring two people from Central Asia to come and speak with us tonight. I did everything I could. I provided 60 documents of um, supporting information to the government. I said to the team in the office, we do not give up until the events are on. Because we trust that the Lord has a purpose and a plan for them being here. It was those last few words that undid me. To trust that the Lord had a purpose and a plan for them being here tonight. Because there's a fine line between trusting God with our purpose and trying to manipulate it. And so tonight what I want to do is take you on a journey that I've walked around purpose and show you how the persecuted church is one of the single best spiritual mentors you could ever want in your life. But before we get to that, let me start by telling you where my story of purpose began. Here it is here. All right. Here it is, a letter It says, I wear as an unwed, destitute woman gave birth to a male child on the 21st of January 1981 and abandoned said child at the maternity wing of the St Mary's Convent Bungalow. Left the child at the maternity wing without giving any clues of her whereabouts and whereas since then, the child is in the care and the custody of so forth. That's where my story began. Abandoned at birth in India, placed into an orphanage, awaiting adoption. In fact, There's a bit more to it because in 1977, four years or so before that, a family in Australia applied for an adoption. They heard a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape, but nothing concrete. After four years of sort of waiting, they decided on giving up on and adopting a child and having two biological daughters of their own, they spent the money they had saved on a trip to America as a way of closing the chapter and moving on in life. Anyway, while all this was happening, the lady in the orphanage took a liking to me She grabbed me one night and she smuggled me across a neighbouring state line. She bribed some nuns with cash to say that I was dumped on their doorstep and my birth certificate could be changed and I could be adopted under that state's law. This family got back from their holiday to America. They got a phone call saying the adoption's gone through and your son will be at the airport at the weekend. (laughs) Well, I know they're they're Christian, but I'm pretty sure they were somewhat worried. And uh, that night they went to bed, they prayed about it. The next day, my mum was driving a car. She had a car crash, wrote the car off without a scratch or a bruise to her or the two daughters in the car. And then two days later, the day before I arrived in Sydney, the insurance money had been returned to her bank account. And it was to the exact dollar that was needed to pay for my adoption. Not a dollar more, not a dollar less. You see, that's where God's story of purpose began for me. But before we move on, one thing I want to clarify tonight is that there is no hierarchy within testimony. I think we live in a culture and society that can often glorify the story more than God's purpose in the story. And whether you grew up in a Christian home or whether you had a somewhat elaborate start to your life like mine, it's God's story. And my encouragement to you tonight is don't ever let anyone try and tell you that your testimony is any less valid than theirs because there is no hierarchy in story when it comes to God. Oh, before we move on, if you don't realise, that's me on the slide. <laughs> in Wellington, we finished and the team's like, you didn't, you didn't tell anyone that that was you. And I'm like, I'm just talking about adoption. Pretty sure he looks Indian. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure we look the same. 
And they said, I actually didn't have a clue. And I'm like, oh my goodness. So anyway, that's me as a baby, as you can tell. Uh, and in the top right are the shoes that I was wearing when I arrived in Australia. So for the Open Doors team, I've checked the box. People know we're moving on. But whether you're in a season tonight of questioning purpose, whether you're needing some encouragement around hope, overcoming fear, or even if you're here not knowing God, your husband or your wife dragged you along, your parents brought you into the room, well, you know what? I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that number one, there's a reason that our guests are not with us tonight. And number two, there's a reason that you're here in this room tonight. And so what I want to do is share a couple of stories, a couple of lessons with you about purpose from the persecuted church. Central Asia, it's part of the world that I love. In fact, in the 10 years I've had serving the persecuted church, I've had the great privilege of smuggling Bibles into North Africa, being in the middle of a war zone in Syria and Iraq, meeting with the underground church of China. But the place that I have loved the absolute most is the region of Central Asia, regularly chased by the KGB, a land of beauty and complexity where the remnants of communism, they kind of collide with the rise of radical Islam, where the gospel, it's alive and it's growing. In fact, the opening video, I remember sitting with that man as he told me his story, a mullah who came to faith in Jesus through an incredible dream and now himself travels from village to village sharing the gospel, will more than likely end up losing his life for it but he's one of the most passionate followers of Jesus I've ever met. This is a book of Acts, church, and it has taught me more about faith and life and purpose than I could ever have time to share with you. But the lessons that I want to share with you tonight, they come from my time in Central Asia and from one man, this man. His name is Ozod, and he's a man that I'd hoped would be with us tonight. Ozod began drinking at the age of 10, smoking marijuana at the age of 11. He grew up in a highly dysfunctional home regularly beaten by his mother. In his adult life, he became one of the most well-known jewelers in his region, the wealth of which only fueled his addiction to alcohol and drug use. Sadly, as is customary within the Islamic culture of Central Asia, when he was married, would beat his wife regularly. I remember sitting opposite her and she told me I spent 13 of my years of my life living with blue eyes. But when I think about transformations or radical transformations, I often think of Saul to Paul kind of transformations, Damascus Road experiences. And I'll tell you what, Ozod's is exactly that. Because this man is so on fire for the Lord now, the KGB have rented the apartment next door to him so they can watch what he does. <laughs> I remember sitting in his house eating dinner with him and his beautiful wife, and he says to me, Mike, if anyone comes in, just tell them you're my friend, because you can't get in trouble for having dinner with your friends. Incredible to see a man who's had such an interesting past now be one of the most influential people of faith and culture within that nation. Earlier this year, I was sitting in a secret church with Ozod. It's a church of which he was a senior pastor. And I remember last time I was being there, he would always lead the services. Anyway, this time we're in the church and I noticed that he wasn't leading the service. In fact, after worship, he had asked the children to stand and leave. And I thought, that's a strange thing. I knew in his country, in fact, it's illegal to teach the gospel to anyone under the age of 16. If you're caught with a scripture and a colouring sheet, you can be sentenced to jail for three years, charged with religious extremism. And anyway, as Ozod led them out, I thought to myself, I better ask him about that later. And as we're talking, he says to me, Mike, it's easy to become a master when you're a servant, but to become a servant when you're a master, 
It's almost impossible. It's what makes Jesus so beautiful. He said to me, Mike, I've stepped down from leading my church so I can run the kids' ministry. Because he says, if anyone's going to go to jail, it'll be me. He went on and he says, you look at kids' ministry in the West like a glorified babysitting service. But he says, for me, it is the single most important investment I can make into the future of faith in our nations. And he says, I will go to jail for that every single day of the week. If you're here today in senior church leadership, youth ministry, kids ministry, I hope that's an encouragement to you. Because don't ever think that investing into that generation is a placeholder. The future of faith in our nation, it rests on their shoulders. It is the single most valuable investment we can make into faith in the future of our country. As our time together drew to a close, I remember our conversation had turned towards purpose. And from a man who's basically stepped out of running a senior a, a church into leading the kids' ministry, from a man who tells me that he's comfortable and confident in God's purpose, whether that ends with him in jail or as a free man, I knew the conversation was going to be pretty incredible. And the first lesson I want to share with you tonight is this, the power of proximity. One of the things I've always loved about the persecuted church is their devotion to the Bible. Ozod will tell me reading the Bible is his opportunity to walk hand in hand with God himself through the Garden of Eden. Isn't that a beautiful picture? He said, Mike, when was the last time you read the Bible when you weren't preparing a sermon? As we're talking, he says to me, Mike, have a look at this story. And we go and we look at the story about the demon-possessed man in Mark 5, a story that I'm pretty sure we all know well. Okay, Jesus, he's traveling to the region of the Ten Towns. He's greeted by a man who lives in the burial caves. He's so violent, the chains no longer hold him. The Bible says no one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. What a terrifying picture of someone living in your neighborhood. And when Jesus was still some distance off, this man, he came running towards him, fell at his feet. And as we know, Jesus cast out the legion of demons into a herd of pigs that were standing on a hillside nearby. They ran down the hill and drowned. But what I didn't realize was what happened next. Because as Jesus was getting back into the boat to leave, the man who had been demon-possessed, he begged the Lord to go with him, something that I've never really noticed before in the scriptures. And in retrospect, a seemingly okay response. But Jesus says to him, no, 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 you stay here and you tell your story to the region of the ten towns. But why is that so important? As Odd told me, well, Mike, the reason is that your story, it has the most power to the people who know you best. He said, had the man got into the boat and gone to the other side of the lake, well, he said, there would have been people over there who said, man, I've heard of you. Is that really you? But he says, by making him stay in the region of the ten towns, people would see him and they say, no, I truly knew you. What's changed? Your story has the most power to those who know you best. Ozod smiled at me and he says, now come with me to Mark 8. And so I flick through the scriptures, really eager to see what he's about to show me. And, and when we get there, I see a story about Jesus feeding the 4,000. Ozod said to me, Mike, why are the 4,000 there? I quickly sort of scan through, uh, flailing for an answer. Ozod steps in and saves me and he says, Mike, you read the Bible in chapters and verses, compartmentalized. He says it was never meant to be read like that. It's a flowing narrative. We read it like that. He says, come back with me a few verses to Mark 7 and verse 31, because he says, here it says, Jesus returned to the region of the 10 towns. And what did he find waiting? He found 4,000 people. Ozod said to me, Mike, the 4,000 were there in part because the demon-possessed man stayed and told his story to the people who knew him most. 
Herzog looks at me and said, Mike, let me ask you, have you got into the boat and gone to the other side of the lake with Jesus? Or have you stayed and told your story in the region of the Ten Towns? By now you're probably getting a pretty good insight that sitting with those odds like one part awesome and one part, yeah, no worries. <laughs> so this was a, one of those moments. Uh, and so I'm sitting there thinking, you know what, he's right. I've got into the boat and I've gone to the other side of the lake where it's safe, where it's easy, where it's comfortable to tell my story. I'm really in contact with people from my childhood, my school days, and my non-Christian working life. And in those moments that I do find myself there, how often do I talk about Jesus? I'm happy to tell you about my adoption, but where was Jesus in that? I can focus on moralistic change. I once did bad things and now I don't. I can focus on materialistic change. I once had nothing and now I have everything. I can even focus on emotional change, saying I once was sad and now I'm happy. But how often do I ever speak about spiritual change? Ozod says to me, Mike, to leave Jesus out of your language will only ever pave the wide road to hell with generosity and kindness. The simplicity of the gospel is being able to articulate who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. In fact, when I came back from this trip, I got the team at Open Doors to come together, sit down and write a paragraph on each. One paragraph on who Jesus is and one on what he's done in your life. Because what I realized was the moment I came to answering that question, I had nothing. And so by putting it into a paragraph, we tried to learn it together as a team, individually. So in the moments when we're in our region of the 10 towns, not only are we not found wanting, but we have the answer. Because if we don't have it, then we start defaulting to the moralistic, to the materialistic, to the emotional. Even as an encouragement leaving from here tonight, as far as the mentoring of the persecuted church goes, I encourage you, go home and write a paragraph on who Jesus is to you and what he's done in your life. One of the most important stories I've written, the power of proximity. The second lesson I want to share with you tonight is to love God and to love people. It might seem like a very simple statement, but again, it was only a couple of days later that I found myself talking to Ozod again, and ultimately faith and purpose came up in our conversation Every conversation with this guy is, actually, no, 90% of conversations with this guy are deep and 10% are just about the most random of things. It could be like hot springs where he, do you want to go to a hot spring? Uh, no, right? <laughs> but that's the thing with those odd. One part incredible, one part crazy. Uh, but he said only a couple of days later, he says to me, Mike, did Saul love God? Again, hang on, you want to talk about hot springs and now you're asking me, did Saul love God? I'm thinking, how do I get my head into where we're going with this guy? But Mike, did Saul love God? Once again, I was flailing for an answer. And Ozod says to me, well, Mike, Saul loved God. He was an expert in the law, devoted to God. In fact, post-transformation, Paul himself says in Philippians 3 that he demanded the strictest of obedience to the Jewish law, a Hebrew if there ever was one. So Ozod looked at me and said, Mike, in that case... What happened on the Damascus Road? What a brilliant question. Ozod paused and with a warm and gentle tone says to me, Mike, on the Damascus Road, Saul learned to love people. In the West, he says, you often do one or the other. You're either all about knowing God and the law, or you're all about loving people through good deeds and acts of service. He says, it's never a matter of either or. You must do both. As we're sitting in his church, Ozod calls to his eight-year-old grandson, he brings him over and he says, stands him in front of us and he says to me, Mike, listen to this. 
He asked his grandson, can you tell Mike what the Bible means to you? And he tells me this beautiful picture of why he loves the Bible. Ozod then says, can you name every single one of the books from Genesis to Revelation in order? And this eight-year-old boy runs through them in order. Ozod says, can you choose five books from random, from the Old Testament, five from the New Testament, and can you tell Mike how many chapters are in each? The eight-year-old boy chooses five books from the Old Testament, five from the New. I'm sitting there trying to catch up in the contents going, yep, there's 25 chapters. (laughs) Incredible. And then he finishes by saying, and would you tell Mike what everyone should know about Jesus? And he says, yeah, eight-year-old boy, they should know his humbleness. Not his pride, not his position, but his humbleness. If everyone lived that way, it would be really cool. (laughs) For me, it was a perfect example of loving God and people, but not from the eight-year-old boy, from Ozod. This is a man who, quite honestly, every single room he walks into within Central Asia in a secret underground church, the room will rise out of respect and honour for him. We were four hours away from his city, we walked into another underground church, and once again, the room rose in respect and honour of Ozod. Ozod walks in, he walks straight over to one of the youngest people in the room, He leans down, gives him a customary Central Asian greeting, kisses him on the forehead, turns to me and says, Mike, this is my dear friend. We study the Bible together. A man who's handed over the senior pastoring of his church to step down to run the kids' ministry, who has a genuine love for God and a deep love for people. His words came racing back to me. Mike, it's easy to become a master when you're a servant, but a servant when you're a master? And this is a man that lives it every single day day. It reminded me of a letter I read from a young Rwandan pastor who was killed in 1980 when his tribe forced him to either renounce his faith and be killed. The night before his death, he penned a letter called The Fellowship of the Unashamed, a handwritten copy of which was given to a dear friend of mine, and it reads as follows. I'm part of the Fellowship of the Unashamed. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his, and I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. I'm done and finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colourless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, sheep living and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotion, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right or first, tops or recognised or praised or rewarded because I live by faith. Lean on his presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer and labour by Holy Spirit power. He said, my face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road may be narrow and my way rough, my companions few, but my guide is reliable and my purpose is clear. I will not be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of the adversary. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, nor ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up or let up until I have stayed up, prayed up, stored up, paid up and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. 
He says, I must give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he does come for his own, he'll have no problems recognising me. My colours will be clear and my purpose complete. Now that is a purpose, full, Christ-focused life. Don't ever underestimate the value you have in nurturing faith and purpose in those that you're called to lead because I believe God has a purpose and a plan for every single one of our lives and more than that, it's the journey that makes us great. Our purpose, it may be manifest in the big moments in life but I'll tell you what is created in the small ones. I want to take a minute to call out two groups of people, specifically people that I think need to be encouraged around the notion of purpose tonight. And firstly, that's the women in the room. Your role as spiritual co-founders within family, church and society, it is undeniable. Don't ever underestimate the role you have in leading purpose. To give you some insight, over the last seven or eight years across the Middle East, we've seen all but a generation of men wiped out in Syria and Iraq. And so in that case, where does the spiritual purpose, the spiritual development fall? It falls onto the shoulders of the women. Mums, grandmothers. In fact, I'm only here today because a destitute woman chose love over fear and dropped me off at an orphanage. Because a nurse chose love over fear and smuggled me across a border. And because a woman in Australia chose selflessness and gave up wealth to invite another child into her life. And because two incredible sisters embraced me as a brother enough to help me write God's purpose with my life. And secondly, the over 55s. You've ever realised that faith, it's the only thing that grows stronger with age. We downsize our house, our health deteriorates, the kids move out, our income drops. But faith, it is the one thing that grows stronger with age. And more than that, our identity and our spiritual worth is not tied up in our vocation. And so when you are faced with ending a chapter of your life, what I see too often is particularly men, their spiritual worth is tied up in their vocation. You know, Ozod, he's in his 70s and he only found Jesus in his 50s. You're questioning what comes next? Man, it's only the beginning. Because faith, it is the only thing that grows stronger with age. The power of proximity. Your story, let's not forget it, has the most power to the people who know you best. That you need to love God and people because it can never be one or the other. And remember our purpose. It may be manifest in the great moments in life, but it is built in the small ones. Let me pray for us tonight. Father, we come before you and I thank you so much that you are a God who is writing a purpose in and over our lives. Father, I ask tonight that you would give us the encouragement we need to see what it means to live with a God-given purpose, courage and clarity here in Australia. We thank you for the great blessing that you've poured out in our lives. 
For you are the one true God, Lord. And I pray tonight that we would take a step closer to you. In the wonderful name of your son, Jesus, we pray. One of the beautiful things about our ministry, as I said before, is that we kind of complete this relationship between the persecuted church and the free church. Now, I couldn't get two people here, but I invited three. And the man I want to introduce you now is one of my dear friends. We have been through Central Asia together. We've been chased by the KGB. All sorts of incredible stories. But his heart and his passion for the Lord and his purpose is clear. Before I get him up tonight, I want to just ask you, please don't take photos of him tonight. It might sound like some kind of over-the-top James Bondy thing, but it's not, I promise you. Only in the last couple of months, the country from which he comes, someone we know closely, visited the West, gave a talk, was put online, and now has been deported from his country away from his family. So when I say it tonight, I'm not saying it for show. I mean every minute of it, every word of it, sorry. He's got a wife and a young family. He is a bold, courageous, and passionate follower of Jesus. And it's my great privilege to introduce you to one of my dear friends, Vadim. Hi, I'm your brother. And I'm so glad to be here at this family reunion that we have because I learned that you love me, my brothers and sisters, your brothers and sisters, before I learned anything about you. I learned that the work of your love has a great effect in the life of the brothers and sisters in Central Asia. I saw how they were crying when their prayers were fulfilled because of you. And I saw them glorifying our Father because their prayers have been fulfilled. Can you imagine? We act like one body with one head, Jesus. And this body is so great that sometimes right hand has no idea what the left hand is doing. And tonight, we will try to have a handshake. <laughs> you know, brothers and sisters from Central Asia, they sent you a very short letter, kind of a greetings. Hi, brothers and sisters. We love you. Don't give up. Our father is alive and strong with love, brothers. Yeah, they are like that. <laughs> they are always ready to encourage and to share. And just to give you a feeling how it's going on when you go to Central Asia, I, I will show to you how we have that fellowship, you know? Sometimes in their homes, the only furniture they have is almost such a nice carpet. So if you want to really be a friend to a Central Asian brother and sister and the church, you need to come to them, to sit together, to have a wonderful table. By the way, you know, when you come to sit with them, they laid the table with the best food they have. 
the best. So you can easily understand how good are the things without asking. Because sometimes at that table, you have tea, bread, and a little bit of sweets. And sometimes the sweets have been borrowed from the neighbor. <laughs> or taken from a special place where they store the sweets for guests. The children doesn't have it. So, and if you really want to know how they're doing, you need to sit hours with them like that, drinking tea, singing songs, and suddenly you will learn what are their hopes, what are their fears, what are their dreams. And then you are equipped to go. As, a, as the organization, we have a chance to be really powerful. But as the family, we have a much better chances to be really fruitful. What we can do, we can joyfully and humbly help God to build up his church in the Central Asia, simply delivering the supplies to those whom he assigned to build the church according to his blueprint that he as a head has. And together with you, we're doing that, uh, helping the church to spread the gospel. In order to spread the gospel, we, we do many different things. We support the missionaries who are ready to go dozens of kilometers to reach the areas where nobody goes. Who are ready to cross the rivers because they don't have the bridge there, but they know that on the other side there are people who need to hear the gospel. We can help them uh, with the materials, with the Bibles, with the training materials, because they need it and they don't have where to get it. We as a family can help them to grow spiritually, providing them, helping them to develop the system of education, of Christian education, where they can teach each other and learn themselves what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a real follower of Christ. Altogether, we can help them to develop, to bring up the next generation, the new generation of Christians who will be able to stand up strong despite the persecution, despite all the storms that they have in the countries and to go forward sharing the message of salvation, glorifying our Father. And we can help the church to become strong independent, self-sufficient by teaching them and giving them the tools to do it. You know, I was asked a question why I am personally doing that. I will tell you. But before that, I want to tell you a story of a family. And you will see that all together we can change lives. We can change lives of people sometimes doing a little bit of something. But if that little bit was a task given to us by the Lord, then he will complete all the rest. There was a family with several kids living in a remote village and there were no other Christians in that locality. And the neighbors, they were really hostile against them because they betrayed their faith, Islam, and became Christians. 
And wherever the kids would go to their uh, village well to get water, the children of the neighbors were calling, the, calling their parents and they wouldn't let them get water. They would throw stones in them. I saw wounds on the head of such a boy. And that family had to drink uh, water from a ditch near the road. All together with you, we did a very simple thing. We made a well for them. And now the entire village come to them to get water. That family had very powerful testimony of God changing lives of the others. Because those kids, they were going to their school using the local bus in a neighboring village. And the bus driver was really angry with the Christians. So what he would do, he would stop in the middle of the road, mock at the children and throw them away from the bus. And they had to walk several kilometers either back home or further to school. What could we do? But I can tell you what God has done. This driver one day took a taxi and the taxi driver was a man who was taking part in this educational system for Christians, receiving some training how to preach the gospel and he preached to the driver. And they became kind of friends. Now the driver, when he sees Christians, he goes there to give them a ride. I don't know how he, how he makes it, but he is able to, to move the pieces into one wonderful mosaic of his love. Why I am doing that? You know, my life dream, life prayer, was very simple. I was praying, Father, I want to see your eyes. I don't dare to ask to see you all as the others, men of faith, saw you. But I want to see your eyes. And you know, one day I literally felt that I saw his eyes. Because I was in this family and it was my birthday. And those kids, they offered me a cake. And when I looked in their eyes, I realized that the greatest trust and the greatest gift from Father the Lord is the chance to touch lives of His beloved ones. And you can have it. This is the gift. Will you take it? God bless you. I just love the picture of the body of Christ in the left hand, not knowing what the right hand is doing, but tonight having a handshake. And so thank you, Vadim, for coming and sharing what the Lord's doing in your life, but also in the life of the Central Asian Church. As we begin to finish tonight, there's always that moment on these events where people are probably thinking, oh, well, when are they going to ask us to do something? Well, now is that time. Just thought I should get that out there. Uh, I thought you meant to keep it like in a really moody, emotional way, but this will do that for us. This is a little girl called Treasure. I was with Vadim earlier this year in a church in Central Asia. 
a part of the world where it's illegal to teach the gospel to anyone under the age of 16. I had the great privilege of going to a youth service. Many of the children in this service, however, was a staunchly Islamic area. Many of the children that come to this youth service are children of prostitutes. In fact, treasured there, her mum is a working prostitute. And when she goes home of an evening to a one-bedroom apartment, her mum is working. Open Doors have a vision to build a centre of hope. You can see it in the photos there. The bottom right is basically what it looks like now. That's the building on the left, the churchy sort of thing that's there. But they've got a desperate desire to build a centre of hope. Because when we were there meeting with Treasure, part of the service we offer would be to feed and help Treasure. But we can never send the food home with her because it never gets eaten by her. We buy her clothes, but we must make and watch her put them on because no, if it goes home, they'll be sold by her mother. As I was in the service, Treasure came over to me and she said she wanted to recite a poem she'd be learning about Jesus. Her mum sort of came in and were trying to do stuff, but her mum sort of stormed to the front, grabbed her and started to drag her out of the church. There was a bit of a commotion and one of the team members there sort of interrupted and told the mum, look, look, we'll bring her home later. After a bit of a kerfuffle, Treasure came back and started to share a beautiful poem she'd learned about Jesus. She grabbed my hand after this, and I'm not really the skipping type, but I'll tell you what, man, we skipped around that church like you wouldn't believe. We were dancing in the rain outside. She wanted me to throw her up on her shoulders, and I threw her up on my shoulders. And I promise you, in that moment, all that girl wanted was the love and the trust of a male figure in her life. That centre of hope on that place, on that block of land, I said to Vadim, how much would it cost to build it? And he says, $10,000. $10,000. To build a center of hope that will change lives right across that country. Because what's God's purpose for Treasure's life? It's a valid question. We hear about purpose, we write our own purpose, we enjoy the country we live, but you know what? I believe she was created with a God given purpose. More than that, I believe we have the ability to write purpose into her life by supporting people like Treasure. And so tonight, on your seat, you will find one of these brochures and a pen. What we challenge people to do at Open Doors is to match a subscription from your life to the work of Open Doors, to help people follow Jesus all over the world, no matter the cost. Because you know what? I know people who have got Stan, Spotify, and Netflix. So what is the survival of the church worth to you? Because I've seen a lot of Christians survive persecution, but very few prosperity. So tonight, what I'm asking you to do is to consider matching a subscription from your life to the ongoing work of Open Doors, to invest into things like Centres of Hope. Because you know what? I believe collectively in this room, with the amount of people here tonight, we could pay that $10,000 in monthly subscriptions easily. Because a small sacrifice from many people, it makes a massive difference. That's why we're not here saying it's a cash grab. I want everything you've got. Give me all of your attention. No, no, I don't want this com to compromise from your church giving, from your giving to other charities, but I do want to say to you, we're in that body and sometimes we are the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. How can we overcome the bonds of wealth and comfort tonight by matching a subscription from our life? It might be your mobile phone, even one coffee a week. A week, not a day, one coffee a week is $20 a month. 
because I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that people like treasure matter. In fact, as we left that church, I asked Vadim and he says, you know what? When the church stops saving the one, it starts to decay. And he says, my treasure is the one. So as Joss leads us in this song, I'd love you to consider how you might support the ongoing work of Open Doors. Because it's a beautiful hand-holding relationship where you invest into them and they mentor you. It's never one-sided. Thanks for listening to Open Doors Live with your hosts, Mike Gore and James Kazina. Because of your support, we're able to bring the persecuted church to life. For more information, head over to opendoors.org.au.